Welcome to Keystone Education Radio, the podcast for all things focused on education in Pennsylvania. Now here's your host, Annette Stevenson. According to the National Association of School Psychologists, suicide is the leading cause of death among school-aged children. The challenges of this past year certainly have made the situation more distressing. However, the encouraging news is that suicide is preventable and training and programs are available for school leaders and educators to put in place to ensure the risks and warning signs are not overlooked. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Julia Zarco, a school psychologist in Pennsylvania and also the recipient of the School Psychologist of the Year Award for 2021, granted by the National Association of School Psychologists. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Zarco. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm gonna jump right in and if you would give us an overview of the mental health challenges that you know, it's a topic that's right on the radar um, always, but particularly during this you know, COVID pandemic, give us kind of a picture of the mental health challenges facing students today and why there is a need to be talking about suicide prevention. Sure, and thank you again to your organization for raising awareness for this topic as well. It is, it is a critical need across the country for um, students and adults, just the needs of our mental health needs and the struggles that people are going through. And especially you know, with the rise, with the COVID crisis, we certainly have mental health uh, concerns and needs. So right. I, I will say for years, we have um, been seeing a steady increase in anxiety, depression, and suicide in our nation's youth. And the statistics show that one out of five adolescents experiences some type of behavioral and or social emotional concern that merits or a need for mental and behavioral health interventions. Why this topic is so important is because the majority of these adolescents do not receive mental or behavioral health services. And only about 20%, it is recognized that only about 20% receive such support and services. And the vast majority of those are receiving those services in schools. So it's a very large scope problem, one in five, but um, very few are receiving the support they need. And just to highlight some of our Pennsylvania data from our Pennsylvania Youth Survey, we do see over the last six years, there's approximately from our sixth to 12th grade youth, 16 about 16, 16 and a half percent are reporting they seriously considered suicide. It's a lot of students when you think about um, how many students are across our state. And um, close to 10% over the last six years every year have have attempted. Um, So we really need to to keep this topic at the forefront and and talk about that this is a need. It is a real need out there. Yeah, it kind of leads into what I'm gonna ask next. You know, it's not an easy topic and perhaps it's one that most people may just not want to think about or may shy away from, but you can't avoid talking about it if you want to prevent it is kind of what I'm hearing. So how do you address concerns from school leaders, parents, even teachers who may not simply be comfortable with the topic? How do you address that? Absolutely. Well, first, I think validating that, yes, it's an uncomfortable topic, but it's a topic that can save lives. And I think it's very important to address the myths around suicide and the myths around talking about suicide mm-hmm. that we know about. So if you if you don't mind, I'll run you through some of the myths and the facts mm-hmm. behind it. I mean, there is yeah. a myth that uh, if a student is really intent on trying to die by suicide, that there is nothing that anybody can do to stop them. And the fact is suicide is preventable. And that youth or that teen that is expressing those suicide ideations 
honestly, it's more about wanting the pain to end. We call it psych ache. You know, they're experiencing such a heavy psych ache that they want that pain to end. And to, in their minds, often death is the only way out. So if we can speak to them and, and, and address it and give them options for getting help to end that psych ache, we can absolutely prevent it. Another myth, another big one, kind of addressed to your question specifically is, if we talk about suicide, we might give students the idea to kill themselves. Mm -hmm. This is such a, a myth. Research actually shows the opposite, that when we do talk about suicide and we, whether talking directly with the, the student, it, it does not put... Um, ideas in their head about suicide, it actually lessens the anxiety. And especially when we talk about concerns, um, the key is, you know, talking in a non-judgmental way, not mm -hmm. placing judgment on if they're thinking about suicide, but more of asking, you know, are you okay? Or recognizing you seem really down. Are you thinking, are you having thoughts of suicide? This just, again, validates the person's feelings and opens that door to the conversation or opportunities to support them. They don't feel alone then. Mm -hmm. um, and that may get them to the intervention they need. So it's validating feelings and being a bridge for that person to get to the help and some mm. healing. Another myth is that those people who are talking about suicide are just looking for attention. This is not true. Most do give warning signs. That's the, that's the thing. Most people give warning signs that they are contemplating suicide. So even if they are seeking attention, mm -hmm. we need to get them help. They need help. They're showing us they need help. And any of us can provide that help, not just mental health experts, anyone can reach out and help. Finally, I would say in, in Pennsylvania, Act 71 passed several years back and it mandates that educators are trained in suicide prevention. So mm -hmm. we certainly should be having these conversations and um, to help educators be prepared because it's uncomfortable, but at least it gives the tools of what do I do? What do I look for? What do I do? Mm -hmm. Those are all great points. And, and those are certainly things that, um, I've seen out there, you know, the myths that you highlighted. I think that's really important to kind of, you know, break that apart. And especially that last one that you said about uh, seeking attention, right? So if someone is seeking attention for that reason, I mean, isn't that even all the more reason really to give them attention, right? I mean, exactly. that kind of seems like that to me, but not being a mental health expert myself, obviously. So what are the steps that school leaders can take to understand what might cause someone to take their own life and how to look for those risk factors and warning signs. You talked about most do give warning signs. And mm -hmm. so kind of talk through like, first of all, maybe just an understanding of what might cause a student to think that way and then yeah. how we can spot those signs. Sure. So there's two, you know, the two categories, one's the risk factors, and then the other is the warning signs. So risk factors are different things that might be happening in a student's life or different characteristics of a student that would put them at higher risk statistically for possibly, um, you know, attempting or dying by suicide. Doesn't mm -hmm. mean they're actually going, you know, that it's going to happen. It just puts them at risk. Warning signs are the, you know, the signs out there that yes, we need to act immediately. There is, there is high probability this, you know, that something could be happening. The student's in danger. So mm -hmm. the risk factors that, and I think this helps educators and school leaders understand who are the groups of students we really need to look out for, especially, and try to put protective pieces and factors in place for them. So for instance, there's higher risk factors for gender, age, race, and geography. So mm -hmm. some examples, males are at higher risk, ages, middle-aged males, white, Caucasian are actually our highest risk population. Mm -hmm. 
but then also geography. In certain areas of the country, there's higher risk. And actually, there's a correlation between access to firearms and higher risk for suicide and the suicide rates in a state. Another big risk factor is our LGBTQ youth mm-hmm. are at much higher risk. And not because of the LGBTQ part of things, but the bullying, rejection, or lack of support that comes with being a youth that is part of that population. And that whole piece of making sure that they are safe um, Mm -hmm. is so important. Another big risk factor is having a psychiatric disorder if you, or a mental illness, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, all those things put you at higher risk for suicide. And then there's also addiction and then previous aggression or low self-esteem, low concept, all these things put you at risk. Then there's other risk factors, trauma, high pressure expectations that we see in some of our higher performing, high intense academic settings. Mm -hmm. Also exposure to suicide. There's contagion effects that we need to be watching for that's at risk. And of course, students that are isolated or have a lack of connectedness. That Mm -hmm. is huge to watch Mm -hmm. out for. And family dysfunction is another risk factor. So the warning signs, what we find is about 50 to 75% of individuals give some warning of their intention to die by suicide or attempt suicide. So warning signs, really things to look out for is big behavior changes or big life changes. So behavior changes, more anger and agitation, hostility, irritability, that's out of character. Youth that appear depressed, hopeless, expressing hopelessness, withdrawing from their social connections, withdrawing from their activities. Also warning signs where students or children are expressing doubt in reasons for living, feeling like they would be better off dead, if they're, you know, feeling like a burden, if they are sharing these things. And then certainly drug and alcohol use puts them at higher risk. If any child should express a plan of how to die by suicide, that is a huge warning factor. And then definitely if they have access or are seeking access to medication and firearms or other weaponry, very, very crucial, you know, if if they're expressing that that Mm -hmm. interest. Mm -hmm. So those would be, you know, the warning signs. If anyone hears any of the, you know, if a student, a teacher, you know, that's where to reach out, you know, to, to actively just listen to the student and then connect care, offer the care, offer validation right. and connect them to, to support. Okay. Or the individual that can then access the support. So yeah. That, you know, the school-based mental health personnel would be the, the first stop in the building. For and these are some of the, yeah, these are some of the things that the training um, yes. includes, correct? Yes. Okay. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Training on warning signs and then training on what to do. And, you know, there's trainings for the adults educators, but it's so important to train our youth because they're the first yeah. line often of hearing the warning signs when it's another student right. and giving them the tools, one, breaking down the stigma of you're actually helping and caring for your friend. You're not, you know, I this is an old fashioned word, but narking on your friend or, yeah. you know, telling yeah. on your friend, but you are state, you could potentially be saving their life, you know, and then giving them the tools of, or the steps of what do I do next and connecting yeah. them to an adult. Hugely important. So you advocate for school-wide positive behavior intervention and supports. Tell us about that. Yes. So um, school-wide positive behavior intervention and supports, it's a framework of how to really around kind of uh, teaching behavior, social skills in a school setting, but also addressing behavior and social skills in a school setting. A framework that is based on behavior research that shows us how to effectively increase positive behaviors 
and social interactions and decrease the negative behaviors. So it's come out of many, a couple decades ago, we were much more of an exclusionary disciplinary practices. And what we found is these did not necessarily change behavior. And it, it set up a lot of our at-risk youth to a lot towards that school to prison pipeline is what we're seeing. So what we've done is there's been a lot of research behind putting around a framework that increases just the knowledge and, and instruction around, you know, thinking of social skills instruction, just how we do reading. We teach explicitly students how to read. We also need to teach a lot of times students how to interact and how to respond and how to behave in the school. So it's a lot of taking a broad-based approach of you making sure you have a social, emotional, behavioral curriculum that we utilize, and then also getting data on how are students displaying their social and, and behavior skills? And then being able to, under a, a multi-tiered systems of support framework, this all fits in. So it's looking mm -hmm. at our data around who are our kids that are not at risk, who are our kids a little bit at risk, who are a lot at risk. And then the, raising that level of intensity of intervention around different social skills or behavior needs that students might have. All of this system and framework, I mean, I could spend another hour talking about this, but really sure. the purpose behind it and why I advocate for it, it is such a preventive method. Uh, you know, when you utilize a framework of school-wide positive behavior interventions and support, it also increases your school climate. It increases your student success in their behaviors, and especially those students who struggle in that area. It increases the connectedness with adults. All of these things prevent bullying, therefore preventing students from suicide or harm or depression or anxiety. You know, it helps to reduce all of those outcomes that we have in a, in a school setting that has a more difficult school climate. So it's that link between the, you know, the connectedness and relationships and the positive morale in a building, the effect that can have on the adults and the students and really help the mental health of all of those within that setting. Okay. So um, we've kind of already talked a bit about the role that the training plays, right, mm -hmm. for staff and students. But what if that training's not available or our listeners don't fall into that category that would be receiving that training? What can listeners do to ed educate themselves if they you know, haven't had access to this kind of information? Where can they go looking? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. Um, there are a lot of really good resources out there, and I, I'll highlight a couple of them as far as some sites, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration site has a lot of information about preventing suicide and suicide intervention. We also have in, from NASP, on the National Association of School Psychologists, there's plenty of resources around suicide prevention and intervention, also just mental health in general, or school-based mental health services. And NASP also provides for school districts the PREPARE training, the acronym PREPARE is a training course, and it addresses all areas of crisis prevention and intervention, and suicide is certainly within that, the, the training modules, and is really <laughs> probably the best model out there as far as crisis training and, and um, prevention and planning for schools. So that's through NAS. Also, I would say as far as our LGBTQ population, the Trevor Project mm -hmm. is a wonderful resource online. It actually is a, a place where students can receive direct help. If they're in crisis, there's a connection point for them there with people that can help them. And then there's all sorts of resources as well. For schools or school personnel, I'm going to highlight one book in particular, and it's one of my very close colleagues, Dr. Terry Erbacher is one of the primary authors, mm -hmm. um, along with Jonathan Singer. 
and Scott Poland. Scott Poland's one of our leading experts in the country on suicide prevention intervention. Um, okay. And it's, the book is simply called Suicide in Schools. And it okay. is, I mean, it is my, you know, my main resource of information for where we've been developing our intervention and prevention modules. It also has training. This one's really good for, especially for school personnel, but training within as a school mental health personnel. So a school psychologist, school counselor, a school social worker, and mm -hmm. our school nurses also help with this. Part of our training that's crucial and important is that all of us are trained in risk assessment and specifically suicide risk assessment. We are the ones that can be in the buildings to determine at what risk level is the student? Is this a student that is at an immediate crisis or is this a student that it is more of a, you know, is a suicidal ideation perhaps or something that we can address, not an immediate, we need to have the student go to the hospital. Um, but then also in there is training on suicide progress monitoring. Again, we progress monitor everything, but having data and a much more of making sure that we are tapping in and checking in with the student regarding their suicidality any ideations and so that we can intervene because we also know one of the risk factors is if a student has previously attempted, there is a much higher probability that they will attempt again. So it's very mm -hmm. important for us to have build those relationships and connections that we can monitor their progress and actually directly ask them about their, their thoughts related to suicide or their plans so that if they become in crisis again, we can get it addressed and save. Yeah, them. yeah, that makes sense. So the ratio of students to school psychologists is quite high, and some districts do not have a psychologist on staff, actually. So how can school leaders advocate for appropriate and equitable access to school-based mental health professionals? Yes, I'm so glad you asked this question, and this certainly is it's an issue that hits close to home for so many of us as school psychologists. It is true. Mm -hmm. um, our recommended ratio is one to 500 students. And the average um, one study that was just recently completed by Eklund et al. in 2019 found that across the nation, we're averaging about one to 1,500 to 2,000 students per school psychologist. Okay. Um, in Pennsylvania, we did some research, uh, the Association of School Psychologists of Pennsylvania recently, we did some research and found it's about one to 1,200 plus students in Pennsylvania, okay. so still very high. And what the research also found, Eklund et al., they found the higher the ratio, the less likely that school psychologist is delivering mental and behavioral health services. There tend to be more of just sticking to doing evaluations to determine if children are in need of special education services. Whereas in our roles as school psychologists, we are certainly and recognized through the Affordable Care Act and the Every Student Succeeds Act as we're explicitly referenced as mental and behavioral health providers. We have the capability of providing intervention and counseling and broad intervention services across a building, again, related to that school-wide positive behavior intervention support, helping to consult and design those kinds of frameworks and programs and monitor the data and help develop interventions. We are those professionals trained to do those roles. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it is crucial that we advocate and try to increase the number of school psychologists in the field and in the buildings so that students have better access to the mental health services. As I said in the beginning, they're mm -hmm. having a hard time accessing them. If we are there, there's more of a chance that they will be able to access them. One, I thought of this, you know, a couple things. One, I think it's clarifying and I think raising understanding of the role of school psychologists, mm -hmm. that we are not just people that give tests, you know, that we do have the mental and behavioral health background and right. um, that, you know, within the hiring process and school districts to make sure that their job descriptions of school psychologists align with 
the certification guidelines that Pennsylvania now has, because we recently had them updated through ASP to match the NAS practice model, which is a broad model, including our school mental health capabilities and service deliveries. The other thing I think is just sharing the stories, you know, and we have stories from, from both ends, unfortunately. We have stories of students who didn't have access and there's tragic outcomes from students mm-hmm. that didn't have access to right. uh, the mental health services that they needed. We also have students that have had access and lives have been saved, you know, and, and we have, I can speak from my own experience. I have certainly intervened several times for students that were in crisis and yeah. were, were contemplating and, and had a plan, um, you yeah. know, and because I was able to be involved, we were able to get them to a safe place. Right. Um, so I think sharing those stories of the importance of having school psychologists, school counselors, school social workers in and accessible to address these needs. And I understand, trust me, I've been doing this almost 25 years now. I know these are, have always been, it's really tough to make those budget decisions mm-hmm. for districts. And I, I completely empathize with that and understand that. I think um, in order to address these needs that we still see day to day, it's going to take that commitment to make that investment in the school-based mental health personnel and the frameworks, the MTSS frameworks, the school-wide positive behavior intervention supports frameworks so that we can prevent the, the issues and then also then be able to address the issues to make sure that we are meeting the mental health and social and emotional developmental needs of our students in Pennsylvania. And so you mentioned a few ratios, you know, I heard one to 1200, one to 1500. Mm-hmm. What is the, say again, what is the sort of the more ideal scenario yes. one to what number? Yeah. The National Association of School Psychologists recommends one student to five. I mean, one school psychologist to 500. Yeah. Students. Okay. I just wanted to kind of yes. remind yeah. everybody of that. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that's a quite a vast gap <laughs> difference <Yes>. there. <laughs> um. What are some everyday practices that listeners can incorporate into their day to support their own mental well-being? You know, whether it be student, educators, whomever. Another great question. I think first off, it's important to recognize the phenomenon of secondary trauma is a relatively new concept that is being discussed. That is, you know, for those of us or, you know, a lot of us teachers and educators, we work with students who have been through trauma or experienced trauma or when traumatizing events come up or situations or even micro traumas, Mm -hmm. we take that on, you know, as, as adults that are interacting or caring and we carry a secondary trauma. So I think it's important first to recognize that, that, that Mm -hmm. does exist and happens and to find those ways that you are able to balance and support yourselves. So I think the importance of, and I go back to again, because it matters for adults too, finding those personal connections. Mm-hmm. Of even if one person that you can trust and, and connect with to you know, support each other and to share out you know, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, to problem solve together, and having that validation of, you know what, this is hard stuff that we have to deal with. Yeah. Um, just having that understanding is huge. I'm also a big proponent of, the mind-body connection. I think this is a lot of where the self-care, you know, we've had a lot of talk about self-care lately mm-hmm. too. We're school psychologists. We're loving this movement as well, but really mm-hmm. importance of being okay with taking care of ourselves in order to take care of others. It's yeah. the airplane, you know, analogy. We need the oxygen mask first before we can give it to the other people. So yeah. really making sure that we're taking care of our own, you know, sleep, nutrition, exercise, or interest activities, whatever it can be to help the mindfulness practice, whatever it might be that helps us to, to calm, to find that, you know, that the, um, 
that healthy balance within our lives. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing is to recognize and seek professional help when you need it and understand there's no shame in seeking out mental health help for yourselves. Personally, I think it takes more courage to get help than to not. It, it really is. It's okay. You know, I think if we can reduce the stigma and say, you know, if, if I, if I have bronchitis, guess what? I go to the doctor and I get help for it. You know, and it's the same thing. If you're feeling depressed or anxious, it's okay to go get that help. It's something that you need and to, you know, to seek that out if needed. Yeah. And certainly this is a time where the school community is impacted by a lot of stress, you know, in this past year. And as you mentioned, the educators themselves, as they're looking to support and serve the students, you know, need to kind of focus on taking care of themselves as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's what stood out to me the most. I mean, I work in two elementary buildings. I've never seen teachers work harder or pour more of themselves. And they're the hardest working people I've seen before COVID and even more so now. And I think, um, I know for myself, I've just wanted my office to be a place. It's certainly a place where kids come that need help or if I'm working with kids, but it's also a place where adults know they can come and, you know, if they need an ear or a a, a six foot distance shoulder, it's there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We have to do that for each other. For sure. I do want to thank you so much for joining us on this episode. I think this is, I I know that there is so much more that we could talk about, but I, but we will include resources with the podcast post um, so that folks can go looking for additional information in the places that you referenced. So thank you so much. um, And also congratulations again on your acknowledgement. That's wonderful, wonderful news. So congratulations, (laughs) but thank you, Dr. Zarko for joining us. Oh, you're very, very welcome. I will end with the other important resource and hopefully everyone will get this ingrained in their, in their brains, but there's two now two lifelines that people can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK or text help to 741-741. So Great. I thank you again for this, for, for bringing this topic to light and, and the importance of it. And I, I do, I encourage all of your listeners to, um, to access the resources and, and I'll just leave you with um, even just the smallest act of kindness can make a huge difference in someone's life. So find those ways every day to just drop an, you know, an act of kindness to even just a stranger. It makes a difference. Important to remember and, and you might not even have any sense of the impact it could make, exactly. you know, before or after doing it. So exactly. good yes. reminder. Yes. Thank you again. All right. Thank you so much. Keystone Education Radio is a production of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. This episode is brought to you in part by CM Region Insurance Company and PA School District Liquid Asset Fund. Visit our website at keyedradio.org for more information on today's discussion and past episodes. Subscribe, share, follow us on social media so you can stay tuned to new topics and interviews. This is Annette Stevenson saying thanks for listening to Keystone Education Radio. The views and opinions expressed on the Keystone Education Radio podcast are solely the views and opinions of our guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Thank you.